All right. Um, so I'm, I'm here with Isaac uh, Fishman. Um, I know Isaac through Facebook and um, I've, I've always enjoyed his, his commentary. And uh, I think it was a few weeks ago. I don't remember exactly how long. Uh, so around the time that the Human Rights Report, uh, HRW, Human Rights Watch Report on Israel came out, uh, specifically calling Israel an apartheid state. And Isaac posted on Facebook um, that if anyone had any questions like about that report, uh, he was available. He was making himself, offering to make himself uh, available uh, to answer questions. So I, I had plenty of questions. And so that was sort of my uh, inspiration to, to reach out to Isaac and uh, have this conversation with him. Um, so I'll just start by asking you, Isaac, sort of like, uh, what was the genesis of that Facebook post? Yeah, thank you. So first of all, thank you for talking to me today. Um, I think I've you know, been interested in the evolving conversation on Israel and Palestine for a number of years. Um, for fuller context, I was born in the United States, but I mostly grew up in Israel. Um, I lived there from age six until 21 before I came back to the United States um, and have been involved in some form of Palestinian rights activism pretty much since I, since I came back to the United States for the past decade or so. And one thing that's been really interesting is the way a lot of the language we used to talk about has been shifting a lot. And I've really delved deep into exploring different narratives and the way people understand different terms. Um, one thing that I've talked a lot about and have been wanting for a while to write about is just the way people understand the word Palestine is surprisingly different between sort of the Israeli or Zionist narrative or the Palestinian narrative um, as does it refer to a future state, a current state of the land generally. Uh, and that's just one example, which we don't need to get into now. But the word apartheid is one that's been coming into play a lot more in the last couple of years. Um, it was used by Palestinians previously to greater or lesser degree, but it has not been mainstream term. And then over the past year, B'Tselem came out with a report saying they found that the situation in Israel in its entirety, as well as the Palestinian territories, um, constitutes apartheid. And then Human Rights Watch came out with its report, which tried to really straddle the line and be very careful about how they're defining it and where, what exactly they're using as a definition of apartheid and what they mean which when I read it, I thought, this is really interesting. And you know, whether you agree or disagree, they're saying something very specific and being very careful about how they use language. And of course, with everything to do with Israel and Palestine conversation, all that nuance went right out the window as soon as people on both sides started talking about it. Uh, one thing, I think on the pro-Israel side, you immediately started seeing people say, well, the situation in Israel and Palestine is nothing compared to the situation in South Africa in the decades leading up to the 90s and in apartheid South Africa and making distinctions that Human Rights Watch had talked about in the report as though they're ref refutations. And the Palestinian side, people started talking about, this is evidence that Israel is an apartheid state, uh, which is a particular term apartheid states that Human Rights Watch not only avoided using it, but explicitly moved around. Mm -hmm. Um, so that their 
talking about one specific thing, which is, um, I guess we can get into the deep, but I thought this is something that's being really misunderstood. And I think it's a really good report, not again for its conclusions, whether you agree or disagree, but in terms of giving a strong, here's what the question is, which you can come out with an answer of yes or no, and giving a lot of facts that people really are facts, not opinions that people can use to, dis to discuss and decide is the situation in the Palestinian territories at the level, they refer to it as a threshold cross. So they think, have they crossed that level of constituting the crime of apartheid? And again, that's really clear what they say, the, has Israel committed the crime of apartheid, not is Israel an apartheid state, which is not a definable term. And so I really wanted to get into the weeds and help people grapple with what the report's actually doing. And I've seen the lack of that. Awesome. So we're, I want to do that. And we're going to um, hopefully hopefully be able to do that a little bit. But before we go any deeper into, into the nature of the report and the definition of apartheid, I just wanted to maybe um, address a few sort of like foundational or, or sort of context questions about this, about this discussion. So one of the things that's on my mind, and I know it's on the mind of many of my friends uh, who are watching what's you know, going on in Israel right now and watching just sort of current events, there's, there's a sense that anti-Semitism is on the rise. And there's a sense that the, the current conflict, but more generally the dialogue and the criticism of Israel uh, that we're seeing uh, in the media, in the world is, is contributing to anti-Semitism. And I wanted to sort of pose that question to you, how you think about that. Do you feel that, that indeed anti-Semitism is on the rise? And do you feel like, the, the, is your understanding of, of the reason for that the same? And how do you think about that problem? It's hard to say, especially since the, the biggest organization that tries to track anti-Semitism, the Anti-Defamation League, ADL, um, I don't think does a very good job and really, tries to make anti-Semitism look as big a problem as they can each year. In the last week or so, we've definitely seen a lot of high-profile anti-Semitic attacks. So horrible. Um, these start, the first one I think that was a really noticeable one, um, other than of course Hamas um, launching rockets at civilian areas in Israel, was in Golders Green in London, just a car, you know, drove past a people eating in a kosher restaurant in a neighborhood with a lot of Jews and said something like free Palestine um, or may have even said um, some insulting language, I don't remember exactly, act as people who won't engage in any pro-Israel activism. So that's when you're targeting Jews or people who are in Jewish coded establishments or kosher restaurants, that is clearly an anti-Semitic attack, that targeting. And we've seen several more incidents since then in New York and Chicago, um, in Los Angeles, sorry, that was a higher profile one. And some of them are disputable. There have been cases which people, some Palestinian activists have claimed it was counter protesters who, you know, attacked Palestinian activists and then were attacked back. So the exact scope is hard to tell, uh, but there's definitely been an uptick in the last couple of weeks. Before that, there actually hasn't been an uptick recently. Um, the ADL, when it published its um, list of number of anti-Semitic attacks, it showed a slight uptick in the number of anti-Semitic attacks, but most of those were like Zoom bombing events, which is definitely anti-Semitic, 
but is a specifically 2020 phenomenon that is not particularly, not the most egregious. And in fact, the number of anti-Semitic assaults, so the most serious kinds, halved from not 2019 to 2020. And that was a big deal as well. Um, of course, the number of anti-Semitic assaults rose a little bit from 2018 to 2019 as the total number of anti-Semitic attacks went down. So the exact numbers of is there a rise is a little bit complicated. Um, and I think we see hate crimes have been rising worldwide due to the COVID pandemic. Some of it may just be that awful people, uh, people who commit hate crimes are, have more free time or are cooped up due to the pandemic. And we've seen rises of violence in all kinds of spheres and rise in violent and property crime. So aside from this past week, I don't know if I would agree with that statement. This week has seen some horrible incidents that it looks like hopefully we'll just, um, due to the um, escalation with regard to Israel-Palestine issues, which of course in no way justifies anti-Semitic incidents. Yeah. And when you and I, for example, talk critically about Israeli policy, I mean, I think no one, no one has any doubt about our intentions or what's going on there. But is there, is there a gray area in, in the discourse where people are criticizing Israeli policy as a way of, of coding anti-Semitism? I don't think there is. I think, you know, what, there are definitely anti-Semites who express their anti-Semitism through attacking Israel. Most famously, David Duke, who you know, uses the word Zios to represent Jews and talks about Israel as a racist state as a way of attacking Jews a lot. But you don't see a lot of that. And the people who do that are very obvious about it. Um, he's, you know, used to be um, the grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, for instance. Uh, what you do see sometimes is critiques on Israel slipping into anti-Semitic tropes. Um, and that is, that is definitely a form of anti-Semitism, but it's not one that's generalizable. That's, so the people who, you know, are trying to criticize Israel and say something like, you know, Israel has controlled the media or something like that, um, they should be criticized. Um, and I think there are many Palestinian rights activism groups that do good jobs of tamping down on that rhetoric. But those are not the people who are painting swastikas and shooting up synagogues. So it's a very different phenomenon. And I, I will say, I've seen more anti-Semitism from Jewish Zionists than from Palestinian anti-Zionists in the form of Jewish groups that are trying to associate worldwide Jewry and Israel and hold all Jews responsible. Um, there was a pro-Israel activist named Rudy Washman, who has said he, do, he thinks all Jews have due, due loyalty to Israel. He thinks that's a good thing, but that's a definitely anti-Semitic statement. Whereas I found Palestinian rights activists to sometimes slip into problematic tropes, quickly uh, respond very well to criticism of that. And I don't see a lot of that movement from criti strong critiques, critique of Israel to anything that I would consider anti-Semitic. So that, that, that's very interesting and it makes a lot of sense. But, but surely though, to maybe take a different, um, to formulate the concern differently or to think about a different, maybe a slightly different concern, surely there are people who uh, feel that Israel shouldn't exist. 
let's say, um, maybe not in mainstream American politics at all, but maybe in, in, in the online discourse that can be a very, very toxic and, and can verge into extreme, extreme rhetoric. Um, is there ever a gray area in terms of like identifying criticism of Israel, which is in good faith and criticism of Israel, which is uh, denying Israel's right to exist? I'm glad you asked me that question. I still don't know what it means for a country to exist or have a right to exist. Ever. Mm -hmm. So I actually reject entirely the notion that someone who is saying, I think we don't, we shouldn't have a country called Israel, obviously going beyond name change, someone who says, I think this should be a secular democracy with no religious um, connotations whatsoever. That's not anti-Semitic. Now we can debate whether that's extreme or not, um, but there was a Palestinian activist in Chicago who said, when she was asked about this, she said, you know, Israeli soldiers shot my cousin when he was a child. Of course, I don't support the right of Israel to exist. There are people whose families were expelled from what is now Israel in 1948, who they have never seen their cousins because half the family was expelled and is not allowed to return even to visit because of Israel's fear of Palestinians taking root. And the other half can't leave Israel because they might not be allowed back in. So whether you agree or disagree, there what you consider an extreme position of not wanting Israel to exist is not coming from a place of anti-Semitism. It is coming from a place of them prioritizing their experiences as Palestinians or prioritizing Palestinians' rights for allies of them. Yeah. So I reject entirely that even what you would call extreme positions on Israel and Palestine as being anti-Semitic in any way. So um, I, I totally agree. I totally agree with you. And, and maybe this feels silly to some audience members, but, I, but I, I can't help but trying to put myself in the shoes of, of maybe myself many years ago when I was more Zionistic, right? So, so nothing you said I disagree with, but I guess there's a fear in, in, this com in a certain community that there's a, there's a, a movement of, um, of enemies that, that want to see a mass slaughter, you know, or that kind of a thing. Um, and, and I'm, I'm, is that, is that sort of like the, the, the standard anxieties of empire where there's like the, the barbarians are at the gate and, you know, they're, everyone's at night, you know, fearful that they're going to be overrun, but that it, it often, you know, is, is overblown and unrealistic. Well, well, I definitely wouldn't use the metaphor of an empire. I mean, we're dealing with very different reality and look, the history of antisemitism is a real one. Um, you know, there were Palestinian leaders definitely in the 20s and 30s, um, most infamously Hajamin al-Husseini, though he is, I think, quoted more often than he, than his um, stature there deserves. But there was real threats. Um, and when you're growing up with a certain narrative, it is not unreasonable to be scared. I do think as a practical matter, um, it's not true. I don't think I don't think Palestinians having more rights is incompatible with Jews having the ability to live in Israel and Palestine. Um, and I will say specifically, and I'm no expert in South Africa, and this is not me pushing the analogy in any way, but it is notable to me that one of the main defenses of apartheid South Africa was people saying once, um, once you give black people rights, they're going to massacre chase out the white people in South Africa. Like that was a real narrative. Um, in Jim Crow South in the United States, there was a similar narrative of giving black people rights 
means the end of white America. Just unfortunately in parts of this country that narrative still exists. So without making a full one-to-one -one comparison, I think this fear that equality means that the current majority power will be in peril is a narrative that needs to be unlearned. And that's not an easy process. Excellent. Okay, great. Um, amazing. So now let's let's maybe look a little bit more um, at the contents of the Human Rights Watch report. Um, most people in most people in this kind of debate, like like a lot of big political questions, have their minds made up, you know, and 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 are not are not seeking out sort of uh, material that might challenge, you know, preconceived notions. So, what are some of like the high level? summary bullet points that, that you think that people should should know or should take away from that report assuming you know they're they're skeptical of it or they're not so they're not so interested in it yeah absolutely so the first thing i would say is understand what the report's question and answer are uh, because i think a lot of the critiques have missed this and what the report did was first it defined the crime of apartheid and that, that's really important for me to emphasize crime of apartheid as in actions that are being done that violate the crime of apartheid as defined by the Rome statutes, not an apartheid is not an adjective. It's a, it's something that is done. Um, and so there they defined crime of apartheid as consisting of really two elements. One is the intent to maintain domination by a majority power over racialized group. And I maybe paraphrasing slightly, I don't have it in front of me. And the second is inhumane acts to, a, to further that domination. Um, and that's really key. So the question is not, is Israel's soul or character apartheid? It is, does Israel have as policy trying to intend to entrench domination by one racialized group over another, and two, has it committed inhumane acts to further that. And, what's, and that, so that's the first part, and that's fairly uncontroversial because this is a crime that already exists. Human Rights Watch did not define it. What's really interesting is the answer that they give, which, in which they say to the question one, yes, Israel intends to have a Jewish state which is domination by Jews over non-Jews and a country that favors its Jews. And there they say that applies to the entire country. So Israel proper, as well as the territories it controls, um, West Bank and Kulunkis, Jerusalem, the Golan and Gaza. And then for the second part, the inhumane acts in furtherance of that domination, there they say in Israel proper, it has not crossed that threshold but in the occupied territories in East Jerusalem and the West Bank and in Gaza, it has crossed the threshold by doing inhumane acts. And that's really interesting. Um, it's different than what B'Tselem did, which B'Tselem claims Israel, uh, they may have even used terms like apartheid state. They've made that distinction a little bit less. B'Tselem said Israel as a whole is committing apartheid. And Human Rights Watch said, Israel's goal of do domination of one group or another exists in Israel as well the acts it does in furtherance of that have only crossed the threshold of apartheid in the territories. And here's why that matters, because in Israel proper, there are the rights of Palestinian citizens, um, often called Israeli Arabs, though 
that's a term rejected by the Palestinian citizens themselves for the most part, they get many rights. Um, and in many senses, there's equality, though it's largely segregated society, um, segregated de facto and de jure in specific ways. I'm sorry, I'm trying to be very precise because this tends to be very fraught and I may be imprecise in a few ways and so I apologize. Um, but there, the key elements of Israel's policy is that it is okay with a minority of Palestinian citizens as long as Jewish power is maintained. And this is open in Israeli Jewish society. Um, people refer to what's called the demographic problem, which is what if Palestinian citizens of Israel reproduce more and become a larger percentage of the population? Um, in Jerusalem, there was a policy that's become come more to light in recent months as the um, ethnic cleansing in Sheikh Jarrah has become high profile news, which was talking about, they had always said, you have to keep the Arab population of Jerusalem at 20% or lower to keep it a Jewish city. So there was this idea of it's not complete segregation. It's not, we need to get rid of all the Arabs or Palestinians in Israel proper or have a complete separation of society or complete denial of rights to them. So in that sense, it's not like apartheid South Africa. But Human Rights Watch said this need to keep them a minority, the need to bolster the Jewish symbols and Jewish ideas in Israel. Um, they mentioned the nation state law from 2018, which really was all about pushing this is a land where only Jews have self-determination. That's now quasi-constitutional law in Israel. They said this meets the first part of a, the crime of apartheid, which is intent to, um, int intent to have this domination of one group over another. Uh, but it's in a complicated way, as I say, because you still have this minority that in many ways has rights, as long as they're a small enough minority. Um, and so understanding that move that Human Rights Watch has made, I think is really key to the report, because one of the main criticism people said is, well, you have this minority that has rights, and Human Rights Watch accounted for that. And whether you agree or disagree with kind of the way they're trying to straddle that line, it is key to the move that they're making in the report. Yeah, you mentioned you mentioned what the events of Sheikh Jarrah and um, sorry if I'm mispronouncing the name um, of that city, that town, I mean, um, and, and that happened, of course, after the release of the report. Um, but I, I do feel like it is uh, relevant um, to this kind of uh, these kind of questions. So can you speak to that a little bit about what exactly happened there? Uh, I mean, that's been happening for years. It's, it blow, blew up um, right. recently at Newport. Um, so this is an area of East Jerusalem, which for full context, East Jerusalem was an area that was Jordan controlled um, for the first 20 years of Israel's existence. And then the 1967 war, Israel conquered it along with the West Bank and Israel more or less annexed it. It didn't use those words, it used the words of extending Israel's sovereignty or unifying Jerusalem, something along those lines. And Israel has, for the most part, said that Palestinians who live in East Jerusalem can apply for Israeli citizenship, but that's a fraught process that involves them giving up rights to land in the West Bank. There are a lot of denials of those applications. And so most Palestinians there have Jerusalem residency as permanent residency, but not citizenship in Israel, um, which is a very complicated um, 
life, which you know, I could talk for hours about what exactly they face on a daily basis. But specifically, what's key is that they are living there under his full Israeli control. Israel considers this part of Israel, not the West Bank, where it considers, you know, that to be under the military occupation. Israel considers East Jerusalem to be part of Israel proper. But at the same time, Israel is in many ways has denied them services just on a municipal finance level. And there are several NGOs with Israeli government support that have been pushing Jewish settlement into the area. So Palestinians who live there often can't, they're just routinely denied permits to build, build new homes or even in some cases renovate their homes as needed. But Jewish settlements have been able to push there often by either buying land from people who endured financial straits, or in some cases seem to have forged um, buying um, doc deeds that claiming they purchased land. And a third tactic is claiming that this is land that was owned by Jews before 1948. And that's the case of Sheikh Jarrah. So we have as a case where in the 1930s, it seems to have been a Jewish neighborhood, 1940s as well. In the 1947-49 war, which led to Israel's existence, a whole bunch of Palestinians were either fled or ethnically cleansed or expelled, whatever term you're using, from West Jerusalem, and a small number of Jews were expelled or fled or ethnically cleansed from East Jerusalem in that war. And Jordan settled refugees from West Jerusalem in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood, which was previously the Shimon Sadiq neighborhood. Hi. Um, while Israel settled the people who, um, that had been expelled from East Jerusalem in other parts of Israel, as well as other refugees from the Holocaust and from other places in Europe or Middle East and North African communities. So I, I hate to use a term like mutual ethnic cleansing, but that's probably the clearest way to understand what happened here. And then when Israel retook it over, it later passed a law saying, Jew, if people could prove Jewish ownership of those lands from before 1948, then they could retake ownership of this land. But the opposite is not the case. So a Palestinian who's living in East Jerusalem, who says, this is my home in West Jerusalem, which was taken from me in 48, they can't get access to that, even if they did have citizenship of Israel. But what a Jew who says, I was kicked out of East Jerusalem, and here was my pre-1948 deed, can reclaim ownership of the East Jerusalem homes. In this case, it's not even the people who were living there before 48, but a non-government organization. It claims to have come into the rights to that land, which it bought off some committee that claimed to own the land before 48. And they are now trying to expel the Palestinians who have been living there since, uh, I think, the early 1950s, those families, claiming, well, this was Jewish land before the 19th. 48 war. Um, and so this has been going on in litigation for over a decade, and similar cases have been going on for a while. And a previous Israeli court said, yes, this was previously Jewish land. The Palestinians living there are squatters and can only stay if they pay rent to these, this Jewish non-government organization. Um, the Palestinian families appealed and refused to pay, so now they're facing expulsion. And so Israel's our pro-Israel activists are trying to portray this as really just a private property dispute of 
oh, these are people who are squatting in land that was owned by other Jews who are now coming to reclaim it. They're not paying rent so we can kick them out. But in other ways, this is a question of, well, what do you do after ethnic cleansing? Or what do you do after those huge population transfers? And how do you preserve this symmetry? Because these are people who everyone agrees through no fault of their own were expelled or fled from West Jerusalem were resettled here by Jordan and have their, these families have been living in this neighborhood for 70 years and are now facing expulsion. So it's really a tragic case that I think if Israel cared about their rights, if Israel saw them as these are people under our rule that are part of our country, they would find a legal solution to just normalize they have you know, adverse possession or similarly property rights and they can stay there. But because Israel has this policy of Judaizing Jerusalem, and these are not Israeli citizens, and Israel sees this really as people it is tolerating, but whom the government does not work for, Israel is really letting this expulsion go forward. And so there was an expectation of a Supreme Court opinion, probably denying the petition of these families there, which was going to lead to the expulsion. And so in the 30 days leading up to the expectation of that Supreme Court opinion, there were intensifying protests from the Sheikh Jarrah residents. Um, and this started around when the Human Rights Watch report came out, though it's been on social media for a while in Palestinian circles, it's just been gaining more and more momentum. And then it mapped on as well to issues that were going on in Temple Mount, and it really exploded um, over the past few weeks. Uh, but I think the key thing to take away is that this has been going on for a while and that these are people who see themselves as they're being kicked out of their homes where the families have lived for 70 years. Everyone agrees they didn't do anything wrong there. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that, that was very helpful. And it, it goes to show sort of how long we could potentially be going into all these topics. But um, I'm going to try to avoid that so that we can keep this in a, like a relatively, you know, uh, reasonable length duration, but um, I'll just say yeah, I have to go long. It's <laughs> fine. It's good. I appreciate it. No, I, I really appreciate all your explanations. Um, I'll just say on a personal note, though, I do remember uh, when I was in college and had just gotten back from Israel, and I saw a documentary about the conflict, and it covered in detail in uh, the experience of a family in East Jerusalem being kicked out of their home, and uh, it, it, the the seeing that. Uh, in documentary form, uh, what that looked like in practice uh, with, with settlers and soldiers uh, forcibly removing a family from their home, uh, like shattered me, I would say, like really, really uh, shattered me and, and really um, made me, uh, it was like a kind of trauma, like a shock to think that, you know, this is a part of the experience, a part of the story, which I didn't know about. Um, and it was, it was very heartbreaking to see. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, if I say one more thing, which is, I think, really, a really, it's hard to watch, but a great way to understand what's going on there on the ground is um, Muhammad al Kurd is a young Palestinian who lives there and he's been very active in interviews and social media. So just following him on Twitter or Googling him and seeing some of the things he's talked about, because right now it's, it's like a, it's, it's like a war zone. It's so militarized that people, the people living there, there's so many layers of soldiers for them to, you know, go to the grocery store to buy eggs right now. Um, that's really hard to believe unless you read in detail what he's saying. So I really recommend him as a starting point for anyone who wants to 
understand more what's going on because Palestinian voices are really the best way to understand you know what Palestinians feel they're facing and that starting point of the narrative yeah okay so I guess sort of some of the last few questions it's it's, it's a little bit sad maybe another time um, we can imagine a longer conversation um, but uh, that today's not that day so uh, sort of coming to more like the, the concluding questions here um, even though this has been really really wonderful and really eye-opening um, a question which which you hear all the time uh, comes up a lot in this in this kind of discourse online discourse uh, does does Human Rights Watch, does the United Nations, does the world have an anti-Israel bias? Are they obsessed with with like criticizing Israel? So I think a lot of us are obsessed with Israel for reasons that I I was I saw an article earlier this week I don't remember by who trying to understand the reasons for this. But the United States is obsessed with Israel. The United Nations is obsessed with Israel. For its size, this is a country and an issue that takes up a vastly disproportionate amount of attention in the Western world on both sides. APAC is you know, one of the most successful lobbying groups in the United States, incredibly well-funded. More than half of Congress, I believe, comes to its conference every year, aside from the pandemic when it was canceled. Um, it, it might be a little bit less than half, so don't, that may be an imposition, but huge amount of attention both sides, especially in this country. It's not clear to me why. I know why I'm invested in it. I, as I said, grew up as well. It, Zionism is a major part of the Jewish community. I know why Palestinians, of course, are gonna be obsessed with it. And a lot of allies to Palestinians in Arab communities and Muslim communities. And I know in recent years, just progressive activism and the focus on intersectionality and solidarity has led to more attention from progressive activists like Black Lives Matter movements and similar movements, um, Democratic Socialists of America. So I know why all of these groups have so much attention to it. I don't know how it started. Um, maybe it's because it's been going on for so long. Maybe, um, maybe it's just you know a gradual escalation. They're, for a while, it was seen as kind of the Middle Eastern front of the Cold War. But for one reason or another, it's a high profile issue. And so okay. people pay a lot of attention to it because it's a big issue. Human Rights Watch specifically does that less than other places. I, I know a lot of people said they're obsessed with Israel. When the report came out, very few of those people looked at their other reports and how much time they've been focused on China's um, oppression of the Uyghur population, how much they focused on various um, other countries in the less developed world. Um, Human Rights Watch, I think, actually does a very good job of having a very global look. Um, the other recent big party has been the International Criminal Court, which has started looking into Israel. They've definitely not been obsessed with Israel. This, they have, if anything, been obsessed with Sub-Saharan Africa for most of the time. The International Criminal Court has been in existence, and that's where most of their work has been focused. And looking at Israel is very recent for the International Criminal Court, but they still got accused of being obsessed with Israel because they said something and people see a criticism of Israel, which they feel is unreasonable. And they assume this is coming because of undue attention. So that's not true for everyone. Um, it is probably true with me. Most of my activism is focused on Israel-Palestine and part of that is for personal reasons. Part of that is because everyone has to have an issue, so to speak, in which that's something you know more about and spend more of your time about. So I don't know if that answers your question. No, yeah, it um, does. I don't, 
Yeah. Um, whether some groups have anti-Israel bias, maybe, or maybe they have a focus on Israel for one of these reasons and an opinion. Right. The difference between yeah. an opinion on something and bias on something is non-existent. Yeah, in the late 80s, when there was a lot of focus and, and divestment and sanctions against South Africa, um, and, and the UN was putting out a lot of condemnation, uh, there was also, you know, Ronald Reagan was president at the time, and, and he said, uh, why is everyone obsessed with South Africa? Focus on all the other, you know, human rights abuses around the world. But at the end of the day, it was, it was an issue where there could be movement, right? It was an issue where, where activism, I think, could pay off. Uh, and condemnation can can actually bear fruit in a positive direction. So maybe I wonder if it's a similar kind of situation today. It may be. I mean, I think North Korea gets less attention in part because, unfortunately, it's currently beyond a lot of international pressure. You know, there are sanctions on it. It is cut off from much of the Western world. But there's a protest against North Korea in New York is pointless. What's the ask from right. what has been protested? Whereas the United States is very strongly invested in Israel-Palestine and much of the international world has been very plugged into it. So there's more room for movement. So maybe that's part of it. All right, so coming up, uh, let's say, um, this might be the last question, we'll see. Depends how it goes. Uh, maybe this will be the last question. I, I grew up in a very strong narrative, uh, in a narrative that was inculcated from a young age uh, in family and school in my community. And the story goes that I'm part of the Jewish people, which is a beleaguered nation, an oppressed nation. We've been persecuted every century, every generation. Uh, we've been chased out of different countries over the years. Um, and then in recent memory, uh, our, our own ancestors, our own close family members uh, perished or, or barely survived the Holocaust in Europe. And today we have uh, such a unique opportunity, historically speaking, uh, Tre tremendously precious, this, this country, uh, which we can call our own and we can use um, to defend ourselves. And it's a return, it's really a return to biblical ancestral roots. Um, does that narrative resonate with you? Do, 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 do you feel connected to that narrative? I think I feel connected to the first part. I think Jews as a minority faced a lot of anti-Semitism and persecution. Um, and to some extent still do, I mean, Hungary is not a good place to be a Jew right now. Um, I think the United States is a fine place to be a Jew right now. Um, though, of course, there's still anti-Semitism. There's still synagogues that are being shot at every now and then. Um, what, my problem with it is the second part, because Israel exists now. I don't think Israel does anything to stop worldwide anti-Semitism. Um, I recall about a decade ago, I don't remember exactly what the attack was, but there was an anti-Semitic attack, a very violent one, maybe the supermarket shooting um, in France. And Israel's Prime Minister Netanyahu got on the news and said, when Jews have no future, come to Israel. And that's not a way to respond to anti-Semitism. Saying, like, part of Zionism, and unfortunately this goes back to before the state of Israel even existed, its goal is not to protect worldwide Jewish communities from anti-Semitism. Its purpose is to end Jewish communities worldwide and have an Israeli Jewish society. Um, so as an American Jew, I want, I, I definitely believe that we still face anti-Semitism as a big problem and we should be fighting anti-Semitism 
And I think we can do that in solidarity with other groups fighting bigotry and fighting white supremacy. I don't think Israel is part of that fight because Israel doesn't want there to not be anti-Semitism in the United States. Israel wants there not to be Jews in the United States and for the Jews to come to Israel. That's how it wants to solve, solve anti-Semitism. Um, and so in the early 20th century notion of it's so bad, anti-Semitism is so bad that we just have to give up on diaspora Jewish communities. I'm sympathetic to that because pogroms were really bad. The Farhud was atrocious. I don't think Israel was the solution then, and I don't think, I definitely don't think Israel is the solution now. Mm -hmm. um, I think the solution is focusing on our countries and fighting anti-Semitism within our countries. And I don't think Israel is an ally to that fight. Got it. All right, so maybe this is now the last question. Um, so right now, unfortunately, the conflict is like a, a hot conflict and, and there's, there's fire on both sides and there's, there's death on both sides. Let's hope, hopefully, uh, the conflict will cool down as it often does. It seems to escalate and uh, cool down sort of periodically. Um, if, if it were to sort of cool down um, and sort of not be in the news and not be on people's minds, like what, what, should, what should we be thinking about? Like what should, you know, what, what, what's, is there to remember in terms of the work that still needs to be done in terms of um, the way that activism can still look uh, on, this, on this issue going forward? I don't think it does cool down. I think it cools down for Jews. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I, I want to make an analogy to, for, which people in the United States will find an easier time to understand, which was things like the murder of um, George Floyd a year ago, where there was police officers killed a black man, and then there were protests, and some of those protests grew violent, and many of them were suppressed violently by police. Um, but you saw a lot of condemnations of the looting, and a lot of claims, oh, the problem is these riots and violence. And then once those die down, then people talk about, oh, there's quiet now. Whether or not there was any movement on police officers continuing to kill black people. And similarly in Israel and Palestine, what's calmed down is Israel directly bombing Gaza and Hamas shooting rockets at Israel. What has not stopped in any way has been the chronic issues, the chronic violence against Palestinians, um, especially in East Jerusalem, which was what led to the flare up. So I think if there's anything that I hope people pay attention to, it's don't let the sort of acute flare ups coming make you think that this is a position of peace now, because the chronic issues are just getting worse. Um, the day after, or the day of, because it started at 2 a.m., the ceasefire between Israel and Hamas, Israel then sent soldiers into the um, Temple Mount and threw stun grenades and shot rubber bullets at protesters as well as peaceful people praying. As Sorry, I should say the protesters at first were peaceful as well. Um, there was some violence in response to the idea of violence. Um, so there were beatings of journalists and like, this is not a ceasefire there. This is not a ceasefire in Sheikh Jarrah, which as I mentioned, is currently militarized to the extent that it is not safe for the people who have Palestinian families who have lived there for decades to leave their homes. And in some cases there have been few gas grenades just thrown by IDF soldiers or border police into people's homes. So if there isn't quiet. And I hope 
people continue to pay attention to what's going on, which is hard to do because there's when there isn't a flare up, there isn't media attention. Um, so, you know, follow people like Muhammad al-Kurd online, make sure you are seeing the violence that's happening every day and don't fool yourself into thinking that the fact that there aren't rockets means that there was quiet. Wonderful, Isaac, thank you so much for your time, for having this uh, conversation with me. I really appreciate your, your knowledge and your expertise and, and sharing it uh, with me. Um, yeah. Hopefully we'll uh, talk again uh, in the future. Yeah, thank you, Amihan. Thank you for talking to me. All right. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Yeah.